This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Ratcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 4. In truth he was a strange and wayward wight, fond of each gentle and each dreadful scene. In darkness and in storm he found delight, nor less than when on ocean waves serene the southern sun diffused his dazzling sheen. Each sad vicissitude amused his soul, and if a sigh would sometimes intervene, and down his cheek a tear of pity roll, a sigh, a tear, so sweet he wished not to control. The Minstrel St. Aubert awoke at an early hour, refreshed by sleep, and desirous to set forward. He invited the stranger to breakfast with him, and talking again of the road, Valancourt said that some months past he had travelled as far as Beaujeu, which was a town of some consequence on the way to Roussillon. He recommended it to St. Aubert to take that route, and the latter determined to do so. The road from this hamlet, said Valancourt, and that to Beaujeu, part at the distance of about a league and a half from hence. If you will give me leave, I will direct your muleteer so far. I must wander somewhere, and your company would make this a pleasanter ramble than any other I could take. St. Aubert thankfully accepted his offer, and they set out together, the young stranger on foot, for he refused the invitation of St. Aubert to take a seat in his little carriage. The road wound along the feet of the mountains through a pastoral valley, bright with verdure, and varied with groves of dwarf oak, beech, and sycamore, under whose branches herds of cattle reposed. The mountain ash, too, and the weeping birch, often threw their pendant foliage over the steeps above, where the scanty soil scarcely concealed their roots, and where their light branches waved to every breeze that fluttered from the mountains. The travellers were frequently met at this early hour for the sun had not yet risen upon the valley, by shepherds driving immense flocks from their folds to feed upon the hills. St. Aubert had set out thus early, not only that he might enjoy the first appearance of sunrise, but that he might inhale the first pure breath of morning, which above all things is refreshing to the spirits of the invalid. In these regions it was particularly so, where an abundance of wildflowers and aromatic herbs breathed forth their essence on the air. The dawn, which softened the scenery with its peculiar grey tint, now dispersed, and Emily watched the progress of the day, first trembling on the tops of the highest cliffs, then touching them with splendid light, while their sides and the vale below were still wrapped in dewy mist. Meanwhile, the sullen grey of the eastern clouds began to blush, then to redden, and then to glow with a thousand colours, till the golden light darted over all the air, touched the lower points of the mountain's brow and glanced in long, sloping beams upon the valley and its stream. All nature seemed to have awakened from death into life. The spirit of St. Aubert was renovated. His heart was full. He wept, and his thoughts ascended to the great Creator. Emily wished to trip along the turf, so green and bright with dew, and to taste the full delight of that liberty which the Izzard seemed to enjoy as he bounded along the brow of the cliffs. While Valancourt often stopped to speak with the travellers, and with social feeling to point out to them the peculiar objects of his admiration, St. Aubert was pleased with him. "'Here is the real ingenuousness and ardour of youth,' said he to himself. "'This young man has never been at Paris.' He was sorry when they came to the spot where the roads parted, 
and his heart took a more affectionate leave of him than is usual after so short an acquaintance. Valancourt talked long by the side of the carriage, seemed more than once to be going, but still lingered, and appeared to search anxiously for topics of conversation to account for his delay. At length he took leave. As he went, Saint-Aubert observed him look with an earnest and pensive eye at Emily, who bowed to him with a countenance full of timid sweetness, while the carriage drove on. Saint-Aubert, for whatever reason, soon after looked from the window, and saw Valancourt standing upon the bank of the road, resting on his pike with folded arms, and following the carriage with his eyes. He waved his hand, and Valancourt, seeming to awake from his reverie, returned the salute and started away. The aspect of the country now began to change, and the travellers soon found themselves among mountains covered from their base nearly to their summits with forests of gloomy pine, except where a rock of granite shot up from the vale and lost its snowy top in the clouds. The rivulet, which had hitherto accompanied them, now expanded into a river, and flowing deeply and silently along, reflected, as in a mirror, the blackness of the impending shades. Sometimes a cliff was seen lifting its bold head above the woods and the vapors that floated midway down the mountains, and sometimes a face of perpendicular marble rose from the water's edge, over which the larch threw his gigantic arms, here scathed with lightning, and there floating in luxuriant foliage. They continued to travel over a rough and unfrequented road, seeing now and then at a distance the solitary shepherd with his dog stalking along the valley and hearing only the dashing of torrents which the woods concealed from the eye, the long sullen murmur of the breeze as it swept over the pines, or the notes of the eagle and the vulture, which were seen towering round the beetling cliff. Often, as the carriage moved slowly over uneven ground, Saint-Aubert alighted and amused himself with examining the curious plants that grew on the banks of the road and with which these regions abound, while Emily, wrapped in high enthusiasm, wandered away under the shades, listening in deep silence to the lonely murmur of the woods. Neither village nor hamlet was seen for many leagues. The goat-herds or the hunter's cabin, perched among the cliffs of the rocks, were the only human habitations that appeared. The travellers again took their dinner in the open air, on a pleasant spot in the valley, under the spreading shade of cedars, and then set forward towards Beaujeu. The road now began to descend, and leaving the pine forests behind, wound among rocky precipices. The evening twilight again fell over the scene, and the travellers were ignorant how far they might yet be from Beaujeu. Saint-Aubert, however, conjectured that the distance could not be very great, and comforted himself with the prospect of travelling on a more frequented road after reaching that town, where he designed to pass the night. Mingled woods and rocks and heathy mountains were now seen obscurely through the dusk, but soon even these imperfect images faded in darkness. Michael proceeded with caution, for he could scarcely distinguish the road. His mules, however, seemed to have more sagacity, and their steps were sure. On turning the angle of a mountain, a light appeared at a distance that illumined the rocks and the horizon to a great extent. It was evidently a large fire, but whether accidental or otherwise, there were no means of knowing. Saint-Aubert thought it was probably kindled by some of the numerous banditti that infested the Pyrenees, and he became watchful and anxious to know whether the road passed near this fire. He had arms with him, which on an emergency might afford some protection, 
though certainly a very unequal one, against a band of robbers, so desperate, too, as those usually were who haunted these wild regions. While many reflections rose upon his mind, he heard a voice shouting from the road behind, and ordering the muleteer to stop. Saint-Aubert bade him proceed as fast as possible, but either Michael or his mules were obstinate, for they did not quit the old pace. Horses' feet were now heard. A man rode up to the carriage, still ordering the driver to stop, and Saint-Aubert, who could no longer doubt his purpose, was with difficulty able to prepare the pistol for his defence. When his hand was upon the door of the chaise, the man staggered on his horse. The report of the pistol was followed by a groan. And Saint-Aubert's horror may be imagined, when in the next instant he thought he heard the faint voice of Valancourt. He now bade the muleteer stop, and, pronouncing the name of Valancourt, was answered in a voice that no longer suffered him to doubt. Saint-Aubert, who instantly alighted and went to his assistance, found him still sitting on his horse, but bleeding profusely, and appearing to be in great pain, though he endeavoured to soften the terror of Saint-Aubert by assurances that he was not materially hurt, the wound being only in his arm. Saint-Aubert, with the muleteer, assisted him to dismount, and he sat down on the bank of the road, where Saint-Aubert tried to bind up his arm, but his hands trembled so excessively that he could not accomplish it and Michael being now gone in pursuit of the horse, which on being disengaged from his rider had galloped off, he called Emily to his assistance. Receiving no answer, he went to the carriage and found her sunk on the seat in a fainting fit. Between the distress of this circumstance and that of leaving Valancourt bleeding, he scarcely knew what he did. He endeavoured, however, to raise her, and called to Michael to fetch water from the rivulet that flowed by the road, but Michael was gone beyond the reach of his voice. Valancourt, who heard these calls, and also the repeated name of Emily, instantly understood the subject of his distress, and almost forgetting his own condition, he hastened to her relief. She was reviving when he reached the carriage, and then, understanding that anxiety for him had occasioned her indisposition, he assured her, in a voice that trembled, but not from anguish, that his wound was of no consequence. While he said this, Saint-Aubert turned round and perceiving that he was still bleeding, the subject of his alarm changed again, and he hastily formed some handkerchiefs into a bandage. This stopped the effusion of the blood, but Saint-Aubert, dreading the consequences of the wound, inquired repeatedly how far they were from Beaujeu. When learning that it was at least two leagues distant, his distress increased, since he knew not how Valancourt, in his present state, would bear the motion of the carriage, and perceived that he was already faint from loss of blood. When he mentioned the subject of his anxiety, Valancourt entreated that he would not suffer himself to be thus alarmed on his account, for that he had no doubt he should be able to support himself very well, and then he talked of the accident as a slight one. The muleteer being now returned with Valancourt's horse, assisted him into the chaise, and as Emily was now revived, they moved slowly on towards Beaujeu. Saint-Aubert, when he had recovered from the terror occasioned him by this accident, expressed surprise on seeing Valancourt who explained his unexpected appearance by saying, "'You, sir, renewed my taste for society. When you had left the hamlet, it did indeed appear a solitude. I determined, therefore, since my object was merely amusement, to change the scene, and I took this road because I knew it led through a more romantic tract of mountains than the spot I have left. Besides,' he added, hesitating for an instant, "'I will own, and why should I not, that I had some hope of overtaking you.' and i have made you a very unexpected return for the compliment said saint-aubert who lamented again the rashness which had produced the accident and explained the cause of his late alarm 
But Valancourt seemed anxious only to remove from the minds of his companions every unpleasant feeling relative to himself, and for that purpose still struggled against a sense of pain, and tried to converse with gaiety. Emily, meanwhile, was silent, except when Valancourt particularly addressed her, and there was at those times a tremulous tone in his voice that spoke much. They were now so near the fire, which had long flamed into distance on the blackness of night, that it gleamed upon the road, and they could distinguish figures moving about the blaze. The way winding still nearer, they perceived in the valley one of those numerous bands of gypsies, which at that period particularly haunted the wilds of the Pyrenees, and lived partly by plundering the traveller. Emily looked with some degree of terror on the savage countenances of these people, shown by the fire, which heightened the romantic effects of the scenery, as it threw a red dusky gleam upon the rocks and on the foliage of the trees, leaving heavy masses of shade and regions of obscurity, which the eye feared to penetrate. They were preparing their supper. A large pot stood by the fire, over which several figures were busy. The blaze discovered a rude kind of tent, round which many children and dogs were playing and the whole formed a picture highly grotesque. The travellers saw plainly their danger. Valancourt was silent, but laid his hand on one of Saint-Aubert's pistols. Saint-Aubert drew forth another, and Michael was ordered to proceed as fast as possible. They passed the place, however, without being attacked, the rovers being probably unprepared for the opportunity, and too busy at their supper to feel much interest at the moment in anything besides. After a league and a half more, passed in darkness, the travellers arrived at Beaujeu, and drove up to the only inn the place afforded, which, though superior to any they had seen since they entered the mountains, was bad enough. The surgeon of the town was immediately sent for, if a surgeon he could be called, who prescribed for horses as well as for men, and shaved faces at least as dexterously as he set bones. After examining Valancourt's arm, and perceiving that the bullet had passed through the flesh without touching the bone, he dressed it and left him with a solemn prescription of quiet, which his patient was not inclined to obey. The delight of ease had now succeeded to pain, for ease may be allowed to assume a positive quality when contrasted with anguish. When his spirits thus reanimated, he wished to partake of the conversation of Saint-Aubert and Emily, who, released from so many apprehensions, were uncommonly cheerful. Late as it was, however, Saint-Aubert was obliged to go out with the landlord to buy meat for supper, and Emily, who during this interval had been absent as long as she could, upon excuses of looking to their accommodation, which she found rather better than she expected, was compelled to return and converse with Valancourt alone. They talked of the character of the scenes they had passed, of the natural history of the country, of poetry, and of Saint-Aubert, a subject on which Emily always spoke and listened to with peculiar pleasure. The travellers passed an agreeable evening, but Saint-Aubert was fatigued with his journey, and as Valancourt seemed again sensible of pain, they separated soon after supper. In the morning, Saint-Aubert found that Valancourt had passed a restless night, that he was feverish and his wound very painful. The surgeon, when he dressed it, advised him to remain quietly at Beaujeu, advice which was too reasonable to be rejected. Saint-Aubert, however, had no favourable opinion of this practitioner, and was anxious to commit Valancourt into more skilful hands but learning upon inquiry that there was no town within several leagues which seemed more likely to afford better advice, he altered the plan of his journey, and determined to await the recovery of Valancourt, who with somewhat more ceremony than sincerity made many objections to this delay. By order of his surgeon, Valancourt did not go out of the house that day, 
But St. Aubert and Emily surveyed with delight the environs of the town, situated at the feet of the Pyrenean Alps that rose, some in abrupt precipices, and others swelling with woods of cedar, fir, and cypress, which stretched nearly to their highest summits. The cheerful green of the beech and mountain ash was sometimes seen, like a gleam of light amidst the dark verdure of the forest, and sometimes a torrent poured its sparkling flood high among the woods. Valancourt's indisposition detained the travellers at Beaujeu several days, during which interval Saint-Aubert had observed his disposition and his talents with the philosophic inquiry so natural to him. He saw a frank and generous nature full of ardour, highly susceptible of whatever is grand and beautiful, but impetuous, wild, and somewhat romantic. Valancourt had known little of the world. His perceptions were clear, and his feelings just. His indignation of an unworthy or his admiration of a generous action were expressed in terms of equal vehemence. Saint-Aubert sometimes smiled at his warmth, but seldom checked it, and often repeated to himself, "'This young man has never been at Paris.' A sigh sometimes followed this silent ejaculation. He determined not to leave Valancourt till he should be perfectly recovered, and, as he was now well enough to travel, though not able to manage his horse, Saint-Aubert invited him to accompany him for a few days in the carriage. This he the more readily did, since he had discovered that Valancourt was of a family of the same name in Gascony, with whose respectability he was well acquainted. The latter accepted the offer with great pleasure, and they again set forward among these romantic wilds about Roussillon. They travelled leisurely, stopping wherever a scene uncommonly grand appeared, frequently alighting to walk to an eminence, whither the mules could not go, from which the prospect opened in greater magnificence, and often sauntering over hillocks covered with lavender, wild thyme, juniper, and tamarisk, and under the shades of woods, between those bowls they caught the long mountain vista, sublime beyond anything that Emily had ever imagined. Saint-Aubert sometimes amused himself with botanizing, while Valancourt and Emily strolled on, he pointing out to her notice the objects that particularly charmed him, and reciting beautiful passages from such of the Latin and Italian poets as he had heard her admire. In the pauses of conversation, when he thought himself not observed, he frequently fixed his eyes pensively on her countenance, which expressed with so much animation the taste and energy of her mind. And when he spoke again, there was a peculiar tenderness in the tone of his voice that defeated any attempt to conceal his sentiments. By degrees these silent pauses became more frequent, till Emily only betrayed an anxiety to interrupt them, and she, who had been hitherto reserved, would now talk again and again of the woods and the valleys and the mountains to avoid the danger of sympathy and silence. From Beaujeu the road had constantly ascended, conducting the travellers into the higher regions of the air, where immense glaciers exhibited their frozen horrors, and eternal snow whitened the summits of the mountains. They often paused to contemplate these stupendous scenes, and seated on some wild cliff where only the ilex or the larch could flourish, looked over dark forests of fir and precipices where human foot had never wandered, into the glen, so deep that the thunder of the torrent, which was seen to foam along the bottom, was scarcely heard to murmur. Over these crags rose others of stupendous height and fantastic shape, some shooting into cones, others impending far over their base, in huge masses of granite along whose broken ridges was often lodged a weight of snow that, trembling even to the vibration of a sound, threatened to bear destruction in its course to the vale. 
Around on every side, far as the eye could penetrate, were seen only forms of grandeur, the long perspective of mountain-tops tinged with ethereal blue, or white with snow, valleys of ice and forests of gloomy fir. The serenity and clearness of the air in these high regions were particularly delightful to the travellers. It seemed to inspire them with a finer spirit, and diffused an indescribable complacency over their minds. They had no words to express the sublime emotions they felt. A solemn expression characterized the feelings of Saint-Aubert. Tears often came to his eyes, and he frequently walked away from his companions. Valancourt now and then spoke, to point to Emily's notice some features of the scene. The thinness of the atmosphere, through which every object came so distinctly to the eye, surprised and deluded her, who could scarcely believe that objects which appeared so near were in reality so distant. The deep silence of these solitudes was broken only at intervals by the scream of the vultures seen cowering round some cliff below, or by the cry of the eagle sailing high in the air, except when the travellers listened to the hall of thunder that sometimes muttered at their feet. While above, the deep blue of the heavens was unobscured by the lightest cloud, halfway down the mountains, long billows of vapour were frequently seen rolling, now wholly excluding the country below, and now opening and partially revealing its features. Emily delighted to observe the grandeur of these clouds as they changed in shape and tints, and to watch their various effect on the lower world, whose features, partly veiled, were continually assuming new forms of sublimity. After traversing these regions for many leagues, they began to descend towards Roussillon, and features of beauty then mingled with the scene. Yet the travellers did not look back without some regret to the sublime objects they had quitted, though the eye, fatigued with the extension of its powers, was glad to repose on the verdure of woods and pastures that now hung on the margin of the river below, to view again the humble cottage shaded by cedars, the playful group of mountaineer children, and the flowery nooks that appeared among the hills. As they descended they saw at a distance on the right one of the grand passes of the Pyrenees into Spain, gleaming with its battlements and towers to the splendor of the setting rays, yellow tops of woods coloring the steeps below, while far above aspired the snowy points of the mountains, still reflecting a rosy hue. Saint-Aubert began to look out for the little town he had been directed to by the people of Beaujeu, and where he meant to pass the night. But no habitation yet appeared. Of its distance Valancourt could not assist him to judge, for he had never been so far along this chain of Alps before. There was, however, a road to guide them, and there could be little doubt that it was the right one, for since they had left Beaujeu there had been no variety of tracks to perplex or mislead. The sun now gave his last light, and Saint-Aubert bade the muleteer proceed with all possible dispatch. He found, indeed, the lassitude of illness return upon him, after a day of uncommon fatigue, both of body and mind, and he longed for repose. His anxiety was not soothed by observing a numerous train, consisting of men, horses, and loaded mules, winding down the steeps of an opposite mountain, appearing and disappearing at intervals among the woods, so that its numbers could not be judged of. Something bright like arms glanced in the setting ray, and the military dress was distinguishable upon the men who were in the van, and on others scattered among the troop that followed. As these wound into the vale, the rear of the party emerged from the woods and exhibited a band of soldiers. St. Aubert's apprehensions now subsided. 
he had no doubt that the train before him consisted of smugglers, who in conveying prohibited goods over the Pyrenees had been encountered and conquered by a party of troops. The travellers had lingered so long among the sublimer scenes of these mountains that they found themselves entirely mistaken in their calculation that they could reach Montaigne at sunset. But as they wound along the valley they saw, on a rude alpine bridge that united two lofty crags of the glen, a group of mountaineer children amusing themselves with dropping pebbles into a torrent below, and watching the stones plunge into the water that threw up its white spray high in the air as it received them and returned a sullen sound, which the echoes of the mountains prolonged. Under the bridge was seen a perspective of the valley, with its cataract descending among the rocks, and a cottage on a cliff overshadowed with pines. It appeared that they could not be far from some small town. St. Aubert bade the muleteer stop, and then called to the children to inquire if he was near Montaigne. But the distance and the roaring of the waters could not suffer his voice to be heard, and the crags adjoining the bridge were of such tremendous height and steepness that to have climbed either would have been scarcely practicable to a person unacquainted with the ascent. St. Aubert, therefore, did not waste more moments in delay. They continued to travel long after twilight had obscured the road, which was so broken that now, thinking it safer to walk than to ride, they all alighted. The moon was rising, but her light was yet too feeble to assist them. While they stepped carefully on, they heard the vesper bell of a convent. The twilight would not permit them to distinguish anything like a building, but the sounds seemed to have come from some woods that overhung an acclivity to the right. Valancourt proposed to go in search of this convent. "'If they will not accommodate us with a night's lodging,' said he, "'they may certainly inform us of how far we are from Otani, and direct us towards it.' He was bounding forward without waiting St. Aubert's reply, when the latter stopped him, "'I am very weary,' said St. Aubert, "'and wish for nothing so much as for immediate rest. "'We will all go to the convent. "'Your good looks would defeat our purpose, "'but when they see mine and Emily's exhausted countenances, "'they will scarcely deny us repose.' "'As he said this, he took Emily's arm within his, "'and telling Michael to wait a while in the road with the carriage, "'they began to ascend towards the wood, "'guided by the bell of the convent. "'His steps were feeble, and Valancourt offered his arm, "'which he accepted.' The moon now threw a faint light over their path, and soon after enabled them to distinguish some towers rising above the tops of the woods. Still following the note of the bell, they entered the shade of those woods, lighted only by moonbeams that glided down between the leaves, and threw a tremulous, uncertain gleam upon the steep track they were winding. The gloom and the silence that prevailed, except when the bell returned upon the air, together with the wildness of the surrounding scene, struck Emily with a degree of fear, which, however, the voice and conversation of Valancourt somewhat repressed. When they had been some time ascending, St. Aubert complained of weariness, and he stopped to rest upon a little green summit, where the trees opened and admitted the moonlight. He sat down upon the turf between Emily and Valancourt. The bell had now ceased, and the deep repose of the scene was undisturbed by any sound, for the low, dull murmur of some distant torrents might be said to soothe rather than to interrupt the silence. Before them extended the valley they had quitted. Its rocks and woods to the left, just silvered by the rays, formed a contrast to the deep shadow that involved the opposite cliffs, whose fringed summits only were tipped with light, while the distant perspective of the valley was lost in the yellow mist of moonlight. The traveller sat for some time wrapped in the complacency which such scenes inspire. 
These scenes, said Valancourt at length, soften the heart like the notes of sweet music, and inspire that delicious melody which no person who had felt it once would resign for the gayest pleasures. They waken our best and purest feelings, disposing us to benevolence, pity, and friendship. Those whom I love, I always seem to love more in such an hour as this. His voice trembled, and he paused. St. Aubert was silent. Emily perceived a warm tear fall upon the hand he held. She knew the object of his thoughts. Hers, too, had for some time been occupied by the remembrance of her mother. He seemed by an effort to rouse himself. "'Yes,' said he, with a half-suppressed sigh, "'the memory of those we love, of times for ever past, and such an hour as this steals upon the mind, like a strain of distant music in the stillness of the night, all tender and harmonious as this landscape, sleeping in the mellow moonlight.' After a pause of a moment, St. Aubert added, I have always fancied that I thought with more clearness and precision at such an hour than at any other, and that heart must be insensible in a great degree that does not soften to its influence. But many such there are. Valancourt sighed. Are there indeed many such? said Emily. A few years hence, my Emily, replied St. Aubert, and you may smile at the recollection of that question if you do not weep to it. But come, I am somewhat refreshed, let us proceed. Having emerged from the woods, they saw, upon a turfy hillock above, the convent of which they were in search. A high wall that surrounded it led them to an ancient gate at which they knocked, and the poor monk who opened it conducted them into a small adjoining room, where he desired they would wait while he informed the superior of their request. In this interval, several friars came in separately to look at them and at length the first monk returned, and they followed him to a room where the superior was sitting in an armchair, with a large folio volume, printed in black letter, open on a desk before him. He received them with courtesy, though he did not rise from his seat, and having asked them a few questions, granted their request. After a short conversation, formal and solemn on the part of the superior, they withdrew to the apartment where they were to sup, and Valancourt, whom one of the inferior friars civilly desired to accompany, went to seek Michael and his mules. They had not descended halfway down the cliffs before they heard the voice of the muleteer echoing far and wide. Sometimes he called on St. Aubert, and sometimes on Valancourt, who, having at length convinced him that he had nothing to fear either for himself or his master, and having disposed of him for the night in a cottage on the skirts of the woods, returned to sup with his friends on such sober fare as the monks thought it prudent to set before them. While St. Aubert was too much indisposed to share it, Emily, in her anxiety for her father, forgot herself, and Valancourt, silent and thoughtful, yet never inattentive to them, appeared particularly solicitous to accommodate and relieve St. Aubert, who often observed while his daughter was pressing him to eat, or adjusting the pillow she had placed in the back of his armchair, that Valancourt fixed on her a look of pensive tenderness, which he was not displeased to understand. They separated at an early hour, and retired to their respective apartments. Emily was shown to hers by a nun of the convent, whom she was glad to dismiss, for her heart was melancholy, and her attention so much abstracted, that conversation with a stranger was painful. She thought her father daily declining, and attributed his present fatigue more to the feeble state of his frame than to the difficulty of the journey. A train of gloomy ideas haunted her mind till she fell asleep. In about two hours after, she was awakened by the chiming of a bell, 
and then heard quick steps pass along the gallery, into which her chamber opened. She was so little accustomed to the manners of a convent as to be alarmed by this circumstance. Her fears, ever alive for her father, suggested that he was very ill, and she rose in haste to go to him. Having paused, however, to let the persons in the gallery pass before she opened her door, her thoughts, in the meantime, recovered from the confusion of sleep, and she understood that the bell was the call of the monks to prayers. It had now ceased, and all being again still, she forbore to go to St. Aubert's room. Her mind was not disposed for immediate sleep, and the moonlight that shone into her chamber invited her to open the casement and look out upon the country. It was a still and beautiful night. The sky was unobscured by any cloud, and scarce a leaf of the woods beneath trembled in the air. As she listened, the midnight hymn of the monks rose softly from a chapel that stood on one of the lower cliffs, unholy strain, that seemed to ascend through the silence of night to heaven, and her thoughts ascended with it. From the consideration of his works, her mind arose to the adoration of the deity in his goodness and power. Whenever she turned her view, whether on the sleeping earth, or to the vast regions of space, glowing with worlds beyond the reach of human thought, the sublimity of God and the majesty of his presence appeared. Her eyes were filled with tears of awful love and admiration. And she felt that pure devotion, superior to all the distinctions of human system, which lifts the soul above this world, and seems to expand it into a nobler nature, such devotion as can perhaps only be experienced when the mind, rescued for a moment from the humbleness of earthly consideration, aspires to contemplate his power in the sublimity of his works and his goodness in the infinity of his blessings. Is it not now the hour, the holy hour, when to the cloudless height of yon starred concave climbs the full-orbed moon, and to this neither world in solemn stillness give sign that to the listening ear of heaven religion's voice should plead? The very babe knows this, and chance awaked, his little hands lifts to the gods, and on his innocent couch calls down a blessing. Caractacus The midnight chant of the monks soon after dropped into silence, but Emily remained at the casement, watching the settling moon and the valley sinking into deep shade, and willing to prolong her present state of mind. At length she retired to her mattress and sunk into tranquil slumber. End of Volume 1, Chapter 4